Okay, so I think we are recording. I think we are. So, okay, so I can now I can I can now tell the story that I was trying to tell when I sounded like a Dalek, which was years and years ago, being in the control room in Television Centre when the engineers were setting up a connection between a studio in London and a studio in Dublin, and they said down the control line, "Can you hear me, Dublin?" And this Irish voice come back and goes, "No." <laughs> Only in Dublin. <laughs> Welcome to this first episode of uh, the State of the Net podcast. Uh, I'm Paolo Valdemarin. And I'm Ewan Semple. And we have decided to start this podcast uh, because uh, we have been working together for almost 10 years now, actually for more than 10 years, uh, organizing an event in Italy called State of the Net, which is a, a moment uh, almost every year where a bunch of people from all over Europe and the States and sometimes other places meet and think about things and think about how the internet is changing our society. And uh, given that we enjoyed so much having these conversations, we thought that it would be, would have been nice to do to record some of them and to share them with uh, an audience and see what happens. And the whole nature of the sort of conversational way of understanding things, I think, is is what's so interesting about podcasts as well, Paolo. The fact that uh, you know there seems to be a, a resurgence in podcasting, and it's partly, I think, an appetite for people to hear conversations around a topic rather than packaged uh, pre-planned content so uh, I'm certainly looking forward to the conversations we can have about tech and the the impact on society. So the general idea is uh, we turn on microphones start recording and see where we go and uh, also reading the very recent news about uh, Google bots becoming better and better at calling restaurants and pretending to be people, we thought it would make sense to doing this uh, now before we will all be replaced by old grumpy AIs who will remember the good old days where all they had to do was uh, send the wrong ads to people on Facebook. Well, it, yeah, it's funny because one of my talks I call staying ahead of the robots. Um, so here I am in exactly that situation, Paolo. So we better, we better make... Uh, make the most of it while we can yeah well you know i was thinking that what can be more human than being grumpy old men discussing about (laughs) things of the past uh but then again probably ais will catch up at some point with this so you know let's uh, play these cards while we have them well well well, that's interesting so will the or is our usp the fact that we can talk about the future and and will I, you know how good will AI be at predicting or you know anticipating the future or is that one of the human characteristics that ability to make that imaginative leap into something un, unimagined previously one of the things that might keep us keep us going i think that i think that what is interesting is that uh, we are seeing computers becoming better and better at doing things i mean i think that the Google bot these days uh, are above 90% in terms of ability to comprehend uh, human voice and speech. And apparently this is higher than the average human. 90%? Yep. 
No, I mean, I, I was I, I was talking about this the other day there about, you know, my, with my Scottish accent and uh, some of the folks listening might know the, the television character Rab C. Nisbet, um, who's got a very strong Glaswegian accent. And I know lots of people in England have real problems understanding the show. And I was thinking that we could, you know, we've had the Turing test for whether our computer has become conscious or not. Um, we could have a Rab C. Nisbet test to determine whether it could actually understand human exchange or not. And really 90% accurate. I, I don't have the, it might even be above that. Anyway, whatever the percentage, apparently it, that is higher than the average human. And it probably is not in every language. Probably it is in whatever language it has been trained with. Uh, but... Uh, mm. So what is it's actually under, it's actually understanding the language it's, it's understanding the meaning. Well, I'm, I'm th- skeptical. Call me skeptical. Uh, oh no, I don't think it's understanding the meaning. I think it is understanding the words. So it is basically being able to interpret what word would say were said, and part of it is of for of course contextual. You can see it, for example, when you are dictating to Siri how sometimes you get the, the wrong word, but after you tell the next word, it will fix the previous one because in that context, it makes more sense. So it is trained in the context of language, basically knowing that some words tend to go with other, but they don't understand the actual meaning. I mean, understanding the meaning is a completely different, different thing. And... Uh, well, no, by God, if if they would understand ninety percent of the meaning, I think that that would already be in control of everything. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> well, apart, apart from voice controlled lifts in Scotland, um, if, if 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 people want to go off and search for eleven and uh, voice controlled lift uh, on YouTube, they'll they'll have uh, a great form of the, the video there. Um, yeah, it's interesting isn't it? because I mean that whole thing about that sort of relates to what I was suggesting that the interpretation or uh, you know, thinking forward, I I still think it's going to be quite a long way off in terms of technology. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think that uh, there will clearly be very significant uh, advances everywhere. You can have a very large amount of data and start be mm. able to predict based on data. So stuff like driving or accounting or probably you know, legal professions or those situations where by being able to analyze a very large number of data or data sets, uh, you can learn things, probably computers will be, I mean, I'm, I'm sure computer, computers will become very useful in diagnosis uh, of diseases, for example, mm-hmm. if they're not ready. Uh, but in terms of... Uh, being grumpy old AIs and complain to each other about humans, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And that and that sort of raises the issue that I quite often mention to people that I think we make the mistake at the moment of trying to, or measuring technology's intelligence against our own forms of intelligence or even the fact that we try to make the machines, the ro- robotics look like humans or dogs or whatever whereas i think both of those will become much more powerful and potentially in the future eclipse us when they start operating on their own terms and their own form of intelligence if that's the right way of describing it where the means by which 
AI arrives at actions or decisions may be a very different way of working things out or understanding things than we employ, but might be faster and might be more more, more effective. Well, I guess that uh, the, the, the big challenge here is going to be for us to keep understanding what AIs are doing and yeah. uh, given that we will be I don't I don't remember who said this but apparently one of the big challenges with humans creating AIs is that we will try we will have to try to instill in AI something which we don't have which is respect for inferior form of life um, yeah we are not very good at doing that so the fact that we will create something that will will be like that is uh, sort of unlikely. But I think that, you know, probably until AI develop a sense of humor, we should not be afraid about them becoming <laughs> evil controllers of, 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 the, of the humans. Well, yeah, there's a few humans I know that could do with developing a sense of humor. But, uh, but yeah, since that whole thing about, well, that's why I wrote an article recently called The Ideology of Algorithms. It's the fact that we need to give some serious thought to the sorts of values that we program into things because, you know, at the moment, by default, it tends to be the, the values of a small group of geeks in California. And uh, especially once you get more advanced AI that's, you know, known as black box AI but begins to work under its own auspices, then how you set it up in the first place has got really significant consequences. And and I, you know, in that article, I worry about the fact that we're still too inclined as a as a society to step back and say, well, I, I don't do technology and leave it to other people. But if it's going to come out well, if we're not going to end up in a pretty dystopian future, I think more people need to become more, more willing to roll their sleeves up and get involved. It's one of the interesting things that came up this, uh, so the, Main topic for the conference, for the State of the Net conference this year, was uh, consequences. And uh, one of the consequences that we were investigating were related to um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal and more in mm. general, what do we have, what can we do uh, about uh, these uh, huge technology companies that uh, very often... I mean, they're not necessarily evil. They just have not no, considered no. the consequences of what they were doing. And and to be honest, probably nobody can. I mean, they, when you develop a technology to deliver better ads to people, I think that, honestly, you're doing a kind of a good thing. And if that technology would work, and most of the time it doesn't, uh, the fact that I would get ads of stuff that potentially interests me is better than me getting ads of stuff that does not interest me. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that when you use that very same technology to target uh, specific groups with political advertising, then we have a problem. But, yep. uh, you know, of course they didn't consider that before. Probably they didn't act it quickly enough when they had to. But... Uh, it's complicated, is uh, and the complexity of this whole environment is just growing harder and harder yeah. to to deal with. So I agree. The more of us uh, get involved in this process, uh, the more controlled, the more the better idea we will have of where the future is going to go. 
Yeah, and as you say, as it gets more embedded and deeper buried under the stack and where, you know, in the future where, you know, my, my main fear is that you could have a, a set of data that's been collected for benign purposes in one database, but in the future then gets connected with another database, which again previously may have been collected for benign purposes. But when you put the two together, two and two starts making five and, and suddenly you know, bits of my life stop working and I can't use my credit card or whatever. And, you know, the story I always tell is a couple of years ago, the UK Home Secretary, I think it was at the time, said law-abiding citizens have got nothing to worry about from GCHQ. And I thought, well, I I wasn't worried until you said that. And could you explain to me on a day-to-day basis what law-abiding is and also give me an indication of what law-abiding might look like 10 years from now? And, of course, that's the... The issue that the legislators, the the lawyers, um, aren't currently keeping up or getting involved enough in the issues. I don't think. Oh, I think that especially in this country, there is a, a surprisingly low interest in how much the state is getting in our privacy. Uh, I, yes. I think I, I read somewhere that uh, you know the more you have been exposed to governments uh, uh, abusing citizens, the more cautious you are. That's why you know in Germany they are all very very sensitive about the privacy because you know they have experienced the Stasi and yeah. uh, probably were not, and probably here. I, I think that p- here if people. If the government would just offer people to pay the GCQ license and and uh, you know have a backup of all their data instead of paying Dropbox, people would happily pay for it. Yeah, and I have just just realised that we ought to explain, given that I'm you know I've got a Scottish accent and you've got an Italian one, that here is actually in the UK, uh, and we're both of us near near London at the moment. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that that. Uh, sort of plays back to the ideological thing as well, that that over-regulation or over-legislation or, you know, too constraining a legislation isn't a good thing either because you then, you know, that that's in a way what I'm worried about, that encoding of a set of values into the systems at too early a stage would be, would be a bad thing just as much as leaving it uncontrolled. <laughs> so I know it's a, I'm kind of wanting my cake and eating it, but it... Uh, I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? That we need to think very carefully about the ideological or philosophical background to whatever it is we are hard coding into our futures. Yeah, I think that there, there, we should probably spend some time thinking about uh, some higher level ideas that we should try to embed in all different type of technology that will inherently make whoever does that better? Uh, I think there was a very interesting mm. speech this year at the conference. Uh, um, if you are getting this podcast, you will probably be able to find a link to the State of the Net website. And uh, there are all the speeches that uh, were given over the last year, uh, uh, 10 years at the conference are available on our YouTube channel. Um, uh, this year, one of the speeches was by Professor Roberto Zingales, who teaches uh, at... Uh, uh, Chicago University, I think, um, and uh, about regulating companies and saying, for example, one 
important context uh, is uh, multi-homing. If you have a service that uh, easily allow uh, users to use a, a competitor, uh, then you have a much more even and controlled environment. So the example he was saying is in America, you have Uber and you have Lyft. And usually on your phone, you have both Uber Uber and Lyft. And drivers, mm. they have both Uber and Lyft. So you can basically find the best combination, the best rate, the best whatever works for you. Uh, with other big players, you know, take Google or take Facebook, you don't really have an alternative. I mean, you use Facebook or you don't use Facebook, but you don't have an alternative to Facebook. And um, create an environment that somehow promotes or maybe even forces these kind of uh, uh, things would probably create a much better system or at least a system where you don't end up having dominant forces that become much harder to deal with yes but i i, I the, the 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 sort of i guess that pitch is that the market helps sort of things out a bit as well but you know back, back to the example of the the video of the two guys in the scottish voice controlled lift we in the uk increasingly have uh, app-based phone-based uh, parking systems and I was uh, on my way to a meeting I was a bit late got into the car park and discovered that in the spirit of competition they had a different phone system app system than the one that I than the many that I already had on my phone so it was a new one that I hadn't encountered before that insisted on checking my details through a voice activated system that couldn't understand my Scottish accent in the middle of this car park and and things were getting really quite tense as I'm effing and blinding at this phone thing, trying to get it to understand enough to be able to pay for my parking so that I can get into my meeting. And of course, that's, again, partly why we end up in sort of monopolistic situations, because sometimes it just it's easier to avoid some of the friction of the differences that, that keep us healthier in other ways. Yeah, but I mean, if in this context, a truly multi-homing system would have been one where you could pay on the machine using multiple apps. So whatever right, app okay, you have, you. Yeah, yeah. then you could use it, which is of course harder to implement because it would imply it would imply some kind of interoperational system. Which, to be honest, I mean, these days it can't be that hard to do. Uh, it just you know. And it would be a big advantage for users. I guess that the problem is that many times companies don't really feel that need. Many times companies just say, okay, this is easier for us. It's easier for us to build our own app. It's easier for us to compete. It's easier for us to compete. It's how do you figure out how do you split the money with other companies? How do you figure out? Yeah. So this... This the fact that it is a bit harder to implement a complex system makes people not do it, and it usually is against. And, and the more you create this small small friction to users, the more you keep them attached to your system. It, it's like the fact that yeah, uh, yeah. if you want to change phone operator, you need to change SIM. 
there is no reason to change SIM. The SIM is just a number. The one phone mm-hmm. operator could just tell the other phone operator, here, this is a number of this user. They don't do that because this means that to change operator, you need to go to a shop or order it online and wait and get it. It just makes it a little bit more difficult. And uh, But it is changing. And, and it is. Uh, it, there was a time where you could. there was no number portability. Um, now... Mm-hmm. There is dumb reportability, and there is dumb reportability mostly because uh, government have imposed operators to implement this. So I think that there might be some types of rules that actually make technology thriving and and work better. Yes, yes, and I think that exactly, and I think that's what we need to be better get better at or have more people involved in and because when you were describing that uh the benefits of more integrated backup background systems i mean that line raises the issue about big big data stores where more of my data is held and you know this is partly what the gdpr legislation is about is that that integration that makes things easier can also make things more problematic in the sense of the patterns that are then visible. You know, in, a, in some ways, a fragmented system makes it harder to put two and two together and make five. And if we're not going to do that, how do we demarcate the different uses of the data in ways that are robust enough that we trust them? It's, you know, it's interesting watching Apple and the way they manage data. And, you know, they made a USP out of not using your data or not even seeing your data most of the time. And how that causes a degree of frustration. So, you know, when they first of all had iCloud for photos and the fact that the, 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 the photo algorithms that recognized people in fo- photographs were done separately on each machine, which meant that you had to wait for the next machine to take the time to go through all the pictures and decide who they were. And that they've had to sort of shift on that because customer expectations were were otherwise. But it is interesting where that line sits between... Uh, respecting the uses of the data and the and the risks of it being made made, made use of in, in ways we don't like, as against the the frustration that we have that the system's not working. It's uh, it's difficult. I mean, tr- finding the right balance is difficult because on one side there is a lot of. Uh, data protection that should mm-hmm. be in place and it is not in place. I mean, we have weekly news of massive data breaches and uh, and you know they happen they will keep happening i don't i don't even have a particular problem i mean there was last last week there was a uh, they revealed a data breach with the typeform which is a very popular and very very good product and i mean i like them and i'll keep using them but mm-hmm. you know they made a huge mistake and you know everybody Unfortunately, everybody will do that. Um, funnily enough, last week I had a problem with uh, my bank. Uh, somebody intercepted a, a bank card on the way, so they right. got it before right. I did, and they ordered some food with Uber. And I got a, and I got and I got a call from the bank. The, the bank actually notices, and they called me immediately, saying, "Don't worry, everything is fine." There was the, all this uh, re- reassuring language, and I was telling them, "I'm I'm not worried. I'm fine here. <laughs> You're a bank. You will just give me back the money." I yes. I know that that is how is going to work um so but i was thinking how the bank is so careful because everybody probably is very sensitive around the topic of money 
no one is very sensitive about the topic of having a good password on your email account, which is probably the most dangerous uh, and exposed piece of privacy that you have. I mean, if somebody gets into your mail into into your mailbox, they can take so that- control of your life. They can sell your stuff. I mean, it's it's amazing, and uh, but most people are not very sensitive about that. But, yeah. oh my God, I will never give you the, my credit card number, which is a public information. It's not particularly secure. The, the, the way we feel about these different things is actually quite interesting because I think that many people feel very sensitive <laughs> yeah. about stuff that should not be sensitive and they are not sensitive. Well, that, that reminds me of a conversation and I'm probably not going to do it justice and forgive me, anybody who, who knows more about this, but it, it, talking to Vinay Gupta about identity and blockchains, and he, I, if I remember correctly, was saying that, that ensuring the system is going to be key to it, allowing it to flourish. So in other words, building in, as they have with the banks, some sort of shared responsibility or, or means of dealing with the consequences of the thing going wrong is important to get us to trust it and use it with confidence. And Vini was saying that this will be true and to your point, around things that people don't think they care about, like identity, um, in order for it to become robust enough, there has to be some insurance against the point where it goes wrong because it will inevitably at some stage go wrong. I guess I, I guess that probably what we can safely assume is that uh, every system we're using at some point in the future will go wrong. So yeah. building redundancy and building, and so, and most of all, preparing people for the fact that uh, shit breaks yeah. is uh, is uh, probably i mean in in the work that i do with with startups helping founders getting off their company off the ground and you know building digital platforms a lot of the work that that i spend doing is teaching them that software breaks all the time yeah. and that uh, yeah. you need to the, the, the biggest challenge is uh, being comfortable with the uncertainty uh, yeah. recently I, I, I met uh, a guy who for some time was in charge of the feed at uh, Facebook and uh, he was saying that every time they tested a new feature they would only do it on you know one percent of users mm-hmm. um, but at the point at that point in time that was already 50 million users so every time they would change <laughs> something they would have this huge uproar because they would do it to 50 million people which is like you know italy it's amazing isn't it and uh, and but to them it was just a very small number of users and uh, yeah. you know it's uh, it's uh, it's software. We are we are the complexity of the technology that we are using. It's uh, mostly not appreciated, I think, because no, uh, I, you know, with regardless how broken it feels many times. I mean, think of, think about Facebook. I mean, no one. I did, I don't think that in history of humanity there has even ever been one piece of human developed technology touching two billion people yeah and yeah yeah that's Um, it's really interesting is that that whole issue of expecting or assuming perfection and not building in a means of dealing with it when it doesn't work i think it's kind of quite core to this i remember hearing a computer scientist talking about ai 
and comparing it to the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where you know it looks like a good idea to have the brooms helping you with the water, but you haven't foreseen all the consequences. And his example was if you've set a black box AI off to cure or to eradicate cancer, and you find it starts killing people because that eradicates cancer, but you forgot to tell it the things not to do in that in that uh, pursuit, and it's almost like the old you know checksum on 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 networks that you know are you a sort of an are you sure uh, checkbox built into software might might become important. I think that it is also important that we keep understanding how this stuff works. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, recently I read a story. I think more or less somebody built an expert system to be able to tell the difference between pictures of regular dogs and picture of ASCIIs. And uh, and this, it was amazingly accurate. I mean, it was really being able to tell to tell them apart until they realized that uh, the way the AI was doing it is with regular dogs at the green background while ASCIIs at the white background. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't really telling the difference uh, between the type yeah. of dogs. It was just telling the difference between the background. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it, it makes perfect sense. But uh, the AI was very effective at doing something but wasn't really understanding well, and very that, much. And that relates still. totally to, you, yeah. know, you, you talked about cars previously. You know, that's the thing about self-driving cars that we forget. that Our brains, even a bad driver, is taking in so much information and processing 99% of it subconsciously but it's still being taken in and processed if you try to get AI or a computer to do that you know people talk about electric self-driving cars you'll flatten the battery in about five minutes with the amount of computing it will take to do that yeah at the same time I think that uh, if you compare a good driver to an AI probably a good driver is going to be better if you compare drivers to ai i think the drivers will be overtaken by ais not too far in the future i think once you get enough ai you know once the ai cars talk to each other and they are the norm rather than the exception i think it gets a lot easier but while you've still got a mixed economy of an ai system having to anticipate all those bad drivers that you mentioned that's very computationally onerous i think well that's why i think that uh, that uh, the the way forward is actually install weapons or also driving cars to get rid of the other cars <laughs> yeah but only for the wealthy people who can afford those cars well rich people will buy cars that kill others poor people will drive cars that you know you'll get through if don't beat a rich guy well we, we somebody was talking the other day there about if the if once pedestrians learn that ai cars will confidently stop if you step out into the road we'll just all wander about the streets of london without even thinking about it and the whole ai driven cars system will just grind to a halt because they won't be able to move anywhere because all these pedestrians are just stepping out in front of them all the bloody time yeah, oh, you have, people will jump in front of the car just for the fun of it. I mean, <laughs> they break. I mean, or they just you know turn right because they will have the, all these uh, very polite uh, and uh, respectful AIs. They will just smash the car into a wall to save the poor pedestrian. Well, but will they? Will they? Uh, because will the will the algorithm prioritize the driver or the pedestrian? Well, that's. 
or or can you imagine when we'll not only when cars will be able to talk to each other, but actually cars will be able to recognize pedestrians, saying, well, you know, it depends on the pedestrian. Oh, yes. I mean, how much is this pedestrian worth? Yeah. I mean, do you want to run over? I mean, this, you know, we run over this, it's probably because he's old. It's not going to get much, probably. I mean, it's going to, it's worth running over that. That's right. Or in some cases, you don't. And we know that, we know, we, we know through the system that they've paid, you know, they've got very poor lawyers, they don't have much insurance. The consequences for the driver of this car will be relatively, uh, you know, insignificant. So yeah, why not run over that old person? And of course, in any case, we will have AI lawyers. <laughs> I reckon, Paolo, that we're probably beginning to get into uh, the end of this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, and this this very happy vision of the future where we better stop before it gets worse, haven't we? Really. So um, for those of you who, who have enjoyed this and want to listen again, uh, I don't think we've really decided how often we're going to do them yet, but we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully do this again. Uh, and in the meantime, if you want to get, get hold of either of us, uh, where can people get hold of you, Paolo? Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, at uh, Paolo Valde. I don't really update it very often. Uh, but from there, you'll find links to the rest of my life. And for me, um, again, I don't, and here's a topic for another podcast. I don't use Twitter a huge amount, but I'm at Ewan, E-U-A-N on Twitter. And I guess the best place to get details about me is at EwanSemple.com, E-U-A-N-S-E-M-P-L-E.com. And uh, we, as I say, we hope, we hope you'll enjoy uh, listening to this podcast again sometime. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.